saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. To the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David. Joining me from the pack today is Carl, our sound engineer, ever present. God help us all. Today we have a special guest. We have Carol Roth. Carol is the author of The War on Small Business, which is something I'm very interested in as nominally a small business owner and seeing what the war is actually doing to small business. Carol is a vociferous advocate of small business. For all of our listeners, I want you to know that Carl came up with vociferous on his own. So you should be as impressed as I was. It was my word of the day. Okay. As a matter of fact, she was named the top 100 small business influencers by Small Business Trends in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, and so on. She graduated from Wharton School of Business magna cum laude. So, you know, same as me. Right. I went there for a week, I think, for fourteen thousand dollars and got a little certificate. So seven full days. I think Carol and I are about on par. She started her career in investment banking, obviously wanting to do God's work, as all investment bankers do. And in 2010, released her first book, Entrepreneur Equation, a New York Times, Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller. She even won an Axiom Gold Medal for Business Book Award. Wow. Cool. As a self-styled recovering investment analyst, she has completed more than $2 billion in capital fundraising, mergers, acquisitions, related transactions. So she fits right into our show where we talk about finance. She's a frequent guest and sometimes host of national business programs such as Piers Morgan, CNN, CNBC. And what I'm really impressed with here, MSNBC, your business, and Fox News, which... You would think are mortal enemies, but they're all fans of hers. As is the NFL, who follows Carol on Twitter. I am so jealous. They, cool. they used to. They stopped following me. Oh, never mind. Bastards. <laughs> they got all woke. They couldn't handle me they... anymore. <laughs> uh, you can see we love Carol already. Yeah. <laughs> Carol also acts as a fill-in radio host and co-host for variety of TV stations in Chicago and New York. Uh, including AM560 and 710WOR. She's appeared in documentary films and writes regularly in several publications. That's a pretty big intro, Carol. Exhausted. I need a nap. Yeah. I need nap time on this podcast. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Uh, you know, when we get up from your nap, we could talk about you being a Bears fan, which is regrettable with all of your resume. Or we can just get right into the book, The War on Small Business. Um, they're both somewhat depressing, so pick your poison. <laughs> well, well, listen, the Bears have the all-time greatest running back, regardless of the stats that Emmett Smith stole. Walter Payton, sure, best running yeah. back ever. I agree. Yeah, and, and one of the greatest personalities uh, that brought a lot to football, 
you know, outside of the game too. And I have to say too, I'm both a Bears and a Raiders fan. So I, I'm like literally in like every um, kind of bastion of putting my head through the wall right now. So, <laughs> well, yeah. is there any way we can like, you know, get you to be a Lions fan? Okay, don't laugh. Can anybody me. willingly become a Lions fan? I'm so tired of being laughed at. I really am. I, I really. I, I mean, like, I've done those polls on Twitter before. Like, if you had to get rid of like you know two teams in each conference, like who would it be? So Cleveland. I'm, so, I'm sorry, and, and but the, like the Lions, they're just sort of superfluous. But I know. I'm I, glad. To, I'm happy to have them in the NFC North. So. Oh God, you're killing me. You're killing me. Burn her book. <laughs> So, Carol, The War on Small Business, and you're a well-published author, and I think there's a really timely book about a subject that is is not only near and dear to my heart, but it grows worse by the day, Yeah, in my opinion. I don't think it's getting better. I think it's getting worse. Tomorrow's getting worse. Tell me, what, what drove you to write this book, put pen to paper and get it down? Sure. So I was actually approached by HarperCollins very early in the pandemic to say, you know, we want somebody to put an economic lens on all of these extraordinary things that are happening. And I actually, going into it, didn't know exactly what that story was going to be, but I knew that small business was going to be a big part of it because as early as late February or early March, when you know, panic set in around this pandemic, um, and you started talking about CARES funds and crafting relief bills and whatnot, I had put out my own work on if you're going to shut down small businesses, which is, by the way, you know, in my opinion, sort of like eminent domain, you're taking somebody's property rights for the public good, then you have to compensate them properly. And so if these yahoos in Washington, D.C. Want, want to actually do something, there's a way to do this. There's a way to keep small businesses in business. There's a way to keep people on the payroll. It probably would have cost a trillion dollars of which you would have gotten a, a decent amount of that back in taxes. And then that would have been eminent domain compensation. And clearly none of that, nothing even close to that happened. No. So I knew that small business was going to be a story, but as time went on and more power got consolidated with the biggest companies out there, I mean, seven tech companies, gained $3.4 trillion in value in 2020. It was the best year for IPOs and SPACs on record. And you've got hundreds of thousands of small businesses closing, millions more struggling to survive. It was very clear that that was going to be a, a big piece of it. But then there was taking a step back to say, you know, this was an act of war, but it, the war has been going on for a long time. This was just the first time that it was somewhat obvious. And going back to our exportation of capitalism and our importation of central planning and how that affected the absolute most obvious uh, emblematic group of the free market, which is small business. Like if you think about, you know, who, who is who is the free market? That is what a small business is. So I took the opportunity to talk about the pandemic as the lead-in to a bigger discussion around the movement away from free markets and individual rights towards central planning. Yeah. And look, I, I don't think it's an opinion to say that small business is the backbone of our society. Uh, at least it was. I think it still is. And 
you know, I think you've said, or, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but let's not let government will always, you know, will never let a, a, a good black swan event go to waste and printing $7 trillion and then just passing it out. That will take care of the stock market for a while, but it doesn't really take care of small business. And you touched on this for a moment that our seven biggest tech companies, whatever, gain $3 trillion in market cap. I think our country needs to have a, a real come to Jesus moment about the difference between a billion and a trillion. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it turns out it's a lot. And, and now we're 30 trillion in debt, which we cannot service if we raise interest rates, which is why now inflation's running out of control and the Fed's not even wanting to admit that. It's just a passing kind of a, you know, this will blow over the inflation thing. But meanwhile, who's this inflation going to really hurt but small business? And the every man, yeah. So there's so many things to unpack there. So first of all, the statistics, you know, it's like you said, it's not an opinion. Small business, you know, is and was the backbone, by the way, not just of the U.S. economy, of every economy around the globe. 99.9 plus percent of all businesses here and around the world are small businesses. Before COVID, they accounted for about half the GDP and about half of the employment. So to, to say that that is meaningful and you know the number of them, you know, 30.2 million of which around 6 million of those had employees and the rest were solo businesses, definitely backbone. And that's not even layering on sort of gig economy and, and independent contractor workers, which kind of overlaps that space. The other funny thing that you said, which is kind of uh, one of the things I used to open the book is this notion of a black swan. And I was on uh, financial TV in the like, January of 2020, and they're saying, you know, what are you concerned about in the market? Because we had just come off a great year. And I said, I'm really concerned about a black swan. And I feel like a lot of people think that COVID was the black swan. And I'm here to tell you, COVID was not the black swan. They had literally run in 2019 a set of drills called Crimson Contagion, which was, by the way, the exact scenario that we went through, that some weird thing escaped from China and it came over here and what do we do? So people understood that was going to happen. The government had run a set of drills around that. You know, the Bill Gateses and whatnot were all talking about pandemic preparedness. So we knew that that was a possibility on the table. That didn't just come out of left field. What was absolutely a black swan was the government <laughs> shutting down the freaking economy over this. And that is the black swan event. I mean, no matter what we've had previously with H1N1 or MERS or whatever it is, like never did anyone at any point in time say, you know what might happen? The government might just say, you can't do business anymore. And in fact, my husband and I remember talking about this in like late February and saying, you know, what if you just tried to shut down the economy for like two weeks? Do you think we could even do it? I can't imagine that they believed that, that anybody would, would stand by for this. But what happened is that they didn't actually really shut down the economy. They just shut down the little guys that were too small to matter and that didn't have the clout. The big guys were never shut down. If you had shut down everyone, this would not have lasted more than two or three weeks. No, I, and it turns out you can shut down uh, the small businesses. And, and it is like eminent domain. And you, you talk about China and how there was a predictor there. I, I remember I was... I had the uh, the failed notion of running for Congress in 2018, which was a black swan event in my life. <laughs> and 
and at the end of a debate at one point, they had asked us both, what is the biggest risk to the United States today? And I said, undoubtedly China, of course, right? And then I, I, I prattled off five or six main reasons that China is the biggest risk to the United States, both militarily, economically, and everything else. And I had said in there, and if you think about it, the last two or three pandemics, talking about the bird flu, H1N1, and coronavirus, came out of China, and literally I had people in the crowd that booed me. Right? <laughs> they were just like, oh, you're just a fear monger, you. But people don't really realize how much of that had come out of China because China is so good at forcing a chill on the freedom of speech that you can't even identify the country China with these pandemics anymore. People forget the bird flus from there. People forget that the original coronavirus is from their H1N1 because they won't let you call it the Spanish flu or the West Nile virus, right, which are identifiable with the region that they, they came from, even though the Spanish flu started in Kansas City. But that's another subject. <laughs> so, and, and then here we are two years later, and this happens. And what has China gleaned from this? I don't know if you've made this observation, is that they can fare better in a pandemic with 1.4 billion people than we can with under 400 million. And that that's a scary notion for us, that they can actually come out of that better than we can. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, so I have a, a whole chapter around China, which is unfortunately, it's like at the end of the book, it's like chapter 12. Um, but China is so interesting to me on so many levels, vis-a-vis -vis the relationship with the United States. And I talked a little bit more about, or I talked a little bit earlier about how you know we sort of exported capitalism. You know, they were one of the main beneficiaries of us exporting capitalism. And if you think of a spectrum, because people get very caught up in these phrases, right? They get caught up in communism or socialism or central planner capitalism. I just look at a, a, a spectrum. If you think about freedom and choice uh, on one end, you know that's what I would consider free markets and capitalism. And you think of force and coercion <laughs> and control on the other end. And again, call it central planning, communism, social, whatever you want to call it. But you're moving towards one end of the spectrum or you're moving towards the other end of the spectrum. And so we were closer to free markets. We never had full free markets, but we were closer to that. And what we did is we exported this capitalism to China and it moved them closer to free markets, certainly not like fully towards it because they don't believe in individual rights. So yeah. they can never fully get there. Um, but at the same time, we move closer to central planning and we almost have this mirror where we're holding up or we're, we're, we're becoming more like China and they're becoming more like the United States. And it's a very scary proposition. That being said, and you know, going back to the whole point of, of us trying to get back towards free markets, is that I don't think they ever realized the Chinese dream because of all of the force and control that they have instituted. They don't believe in individual rights. So in terms of you taking a risk on innovation, they're never going to be the biggest innovators. They're always going to be the replicators because they, they can't benefit no, that's right. you know, from something like that. And then they have these ridiculous policies 
you know, this one child policy has completely messed up their demographics where you're yeah. going to have a bunch of young men who have no female prospects to, you know, to get married, which that's already happened. In history has never worked out real well. That's already, right? that's already, that's already happened. There's one, there's 110 for every 100 women. Yeah, so, so that's a disaster. Yeah. And then you have a population that's aging rapidly that doesn't have enough young people to right. support them. And then you have all the distrust. So I don't, I'm not as worried about China um, replacing us as I, and I think you, this is what you were getting to, is that they realize all of these things are falling apart. And what kind of lashing out are they going to do to try to hang on to that force and control and i think it's a really big learning opportunity from us if people take the time to really kind of dissect and understand what's happened there over the past several decades which they will not if, if by people you mean <laughs> if they you read my people. book they will <laughs> okay well okay if, if by p i meant if by people you mean congress or our government they will they will not well, no, because they don't lack the knowledge, they lack the courage, and that's a totally separate discussion. Well, I, I would make the point that having lobbied them for several years on behalf of investor rights out, out of China, that they lack both in many cases. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a very humbling thing to see because you want to believe that your country is the greatest in the world, and we are. We are. We still are. But it doesn't always have to be that way. Great Britain was was Great Britain before they're they're just England now in Ireland. It's a, it was in their name. They were great. Yeah. They yeah. were Great yeah. Britain. They yeah. literally said it. It was in the branding. Yeah. There was the Roman Empire and now there's some cobblers in Italy that that make clothes too. So that that's what happens with the crushing weight of debt generally to to empires like ours. And if you think we're not an empire but we're, you know, in 80 different countries with our military, I don't know what you want to call that calling it empire-ish. And, and China gets that stretching us financially, even while they're stretching themselves, is, is only to their benefit. So I don't know if it was a calculated attack on small business, if they, if they suss this out or plan this out. I know that they plan our future better than we do, in that they have that five-year plan they publish. Well, they have a 10 and 15 and 20-year plan for themselves. And guess what? They have a 5, 10, 15, and 20-year plan for the United States, too. They plan out our future as well, which I think is a, a useful exercise to have if you're in competition. And it, it's something to be concerned about. They've, they really have been one of the number one reasons that we have lost so much small business. If you think about the, what they would call the U.S. Postal Treaty, right, where it, it cost more to send something from South Carolina to New York than Chengdu, China to New York, because we have this treaty with them that was, I, I think it was the 1920s when this was written, and it still benefits them as an emerging economy. And I think the last administration was doing something about that. I'm not sure that that's continuing, but there, there's something that definitely needs to be done on a parity level. I'm not, I don't think you're anti-globalist. I'm not either, but I think we're both fair play globalists. Right. So ca capitalism only works if you're playing with other people who believe in capitalism and are willing to play by the same rules. And that was the fatal flaw that China had that for some reason our arrogance of folks in Congress seem to believe like, oh, well, you know, we'll just throw some, you know, democracy and free markets over there and they'll eat it up, not realizing that no, they're communists. They don't believe in human rights and individual rights and all of these things. So it's impossible 
for us to have them as as an equal player. And so that's you know that's the the issue is to have capitalism. You you have to believe in individual rights and property rights. And you have to have the protection right. of them. And if people aren't willing to to play by that, then you get the slanted playing field. So we have the one two punch. We have the China punch. And like you said, it may or may not be intentional on their front. But then we have the punch that's coming from you know inside the house. The call is coming from inside the house, and that is our government. And as these politicians have you know, moved to a more central planning type of model that they have imported, small business. And I'll leave it up to you. I don't even need to convince you whether it's you know through that it, they're too small to matter or they're too hard to control but either way they don't serve the purposes of politicians there's no way to get 30.2 million independent small businesses to agree on issues and to fund campaigns and things right. so it's just easier to have 10,000 or 15,000 big and medium-sized businesses to deal with. Right. So they are completely expendable. And as I have my own theory, but I don't need to convince you either way, because either way it's bad. And either way, you can see that that decentralization, which is a big theme in the book, decentralization, stands in the way of central planning and central power. And these politicians realize that and either it's in, too inconvenient or it's intentional, that's why they, they did the things that they did during COVID, but it's why they've been doing the things they've been doing all along and why the new policies coming out, whether it's raising the minimum wage or raising tax rates or the PRO Act or whatever it is, are all things that sound like they're going after the big guys. But as we know, and we saw this in the, the Great Recession with the Dodd-Frank uh, legislation, it always ends up hurting the little guy. And that's the part that it's hard to wrap people's brains around. I love that Frank got to sign on to that when, you know, he was the biggest Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac supporter in the early 2000s. And and then and then he's going to solve the problem. That's what they do. They, they set fire to your house. <laughs> they, they, they burn your house down and then they start the GoFundMe for you. And then they want to sell you insurance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, banks too big to fail got bigger. They're, they're now bigger than countries in, in some cases maybe all of them together bigger than ours. So there's, there's really no pushback we can give anymore there. And I, and I want to be clear here, like I'm not, I'm not changing my view on whether I think the vaccines were important and, you know, whether adults, especially those at risk, should take them. I do believe that personally, that you should. I'm, I'm a little more agnostic for the kids. You can have that own conversation yourself. What, what we're really talking about is like, how do you handle an economy during this. And I would make the point that we were able to come up with the best vaccines, the fastest, through a partnership of public and private enterprise. But really it was it was private enterprise, right? It was a capital markets that that came up with the innovation. And if you have queried and if you have paid attention to any compliment that Vladimir Putin or President Xi Jinping would ever give the United States, what's what's their biggest envy? They have both said innovation. The United States is so much more innovative than we are, and that's where we'd like to catch up. And I think our, our coming up with this virus so quickly, as compared to them, and with the efficacy that we have, proves that. Do you agree? 
Well, absolutely. And, and the funny thing is that they can't have that kind of innovation right. because they will never do the things that are required under capitalism to allow for that. And that should be the big takeaway. But you know, it was interesting in doing a, a deep dive on this book. You know, as I mentioned when I started, I wasn't exactly sure where this was going to go. So I actually wrote kind of three and a half different books in the process. Cool. And fortunately, the last version came down from 160,000 words to 90 words to make it more readable. Um, but in studying a lot of the stuff that didn't make it um, into the book, it, it is really fascinating about the friction between the private markets and the, the government and how at every turn the government actually thwarted our ability to move more quickly. I mean, the vaccine, as you know, was developed, you know, within a matter of days. It just had to go through testing, which by the way, it should, you know, we don't want to throw something out there to go through some testing. But there were a lot of other places um, where we got tripped up. Um, You certainly testing was one of those, you know, that's the place where like South Korea went to the private markets and they ramped that up immediately. And we're messing around with, you know, big government trying to figure it out. The CDC at one point was the only one who was able to produce a kit. And of course it didn't work and they had to ration testing. Um, And even things like the mask mandates, you know, obviously that's a hot button issue now, but if you go back and you look at how this unfolded, you get really angry because people, the free market, right? Free market was going out. They were purchasing masks, they were purchasing hand sanitizers, they were doing things that were prudent to try to, you know, mitigate a virus the best that they could, because they understood how to do it without anybody telling them. But early on, you had the Surgeon General, you had Fauci, and you had a whole bunch of media running under appearance for them saying, not only don't wear masks, but at one point, by the beginning of March, it was masks are bad for you. I have NBC News on the record in March, berating President Trump, whether you like him or not, this is again, just try and focus on the the underlying thoughts here, that (laughs) they said, you know, he would get caught up in these details and he would ask his medical experts, so why aren't people wearing masks? Because if they work for doctors, wouldn't they work for everyone? Which by the way, you could just hear him say, and NBC News was making fun of him for that, and then completely flip-flop their position when his medical experts talked him out of it and said, oh, bad, Trump doesn't want to do this. So, like, if you just kind of go back through that, if you just left people to their own devices, people would have done things that are prudent. But when you get central planning trying to manage it, then you politicize everything. The messaging still to this day is super confusing and you have a lot of people who are not only angry but you've got a bunch of people who are legitimately traumatized and you know this is all in the name well, they, they of a lost power their business they lost their business of course they're legitimately <laughs> traumatized i mean there i know people who've lost their business so and you know they they don't they don't want to be anti-american and say you know i, I wanted more people to die i mean everybody wanted everybody to live and we're not denying that there's a virus, but, you know, along with some of the issues that came up, not just testing, but there were supply chain issues that were huge that and, and, and it all went back to Trump. And like, look, everybody who listens to the show knows that I think President Trump could sound like a shit show on any given day, but the policies were not all bad. And I don't know that supply chain issues that really kind of started 10, 15, 20 years ago 
happened on his watch, you know, and we still kind of had these supply chain issues. So I but mean, here's the fun thing about the supply chain issues that for many of them, I think almost all of them, that they were solved by the free market and the government getting out of the way. I mean, the right. hand sanitizer issue in and of itself, where you couldn't find hand sanitizer, was solved by the government going, okay, like we're not going to force you to go like jump through 19 hoops to make hand sanitizer. Oh. If they, if they, same thing with getting nurses to go work in you know certain areas that you know they didn't have a certificate for. Like you solved every issue by getting the government out of the way, not by a bunch of central planners running around going, "We know what to do." Oh, you should have been in Pennsylvania for the for the early <laughs> days of this, where you know in Pennsylvania, the biggest liquor buyer in the United States is the state of Pennsylvania, because they're <laughs> state stores. You can only buy liquor in. And bars, uh, you can't buy liquor. You can only buy beer in state stores. That's a really fantastic reason for that as well. And they shut them down for three months. So it was a really bad time to be an alcoholic. <laughs> and, and it turns out alcoholism is a thing. It's real. And you'd have people that ran out of sanitizer that are cleaning their hands with, with whatever alcohol they had on hand. And then you had the alcoholics wanting to kill them. <laughs> You're wasting all that good alcohol I need. But for three months... You couldn't do, and, and in Delaware and in New Jersey, they were pulling people over from Pennsylvania with Pennsylvania plates going into liquor stores and kicking them out of the state. It was, it's the crazy stuff like this. Like, it seems like a little thing, but it's crazy stuff like this that's overreach of the government that, that drives people absolutely nuts, in my opinion. But think about, so head up all these little things. I mean, we're in March your 16th call it of 2020 and they told us 15 days to slow the spread yeah. and yeah. here we are 15 freaking months later and there are still politicians dicking around with this yeah. when by the way everybody who wants to get a vaccine has been eligible to get a vaccine right. and they've said that their work and the data shows that so it does go to show you no matter what side you are on of what you thought should have happened, that this was in fact, in large part, a power grab. And they did not pursue full liberties, but they didn't pursue full lockdowns. It was just literally, let's you know do whatever we can to cement the power that so that we can you know cement our place and and you know make it more cohesive. And that's unfortunately to the detriment of economic freedom and the thing that brings all everybody from every corner of the globe to come to want to come to America. All right, so Carol, tell me, like from, from your book or your opinion or even the things that didn't make it in your book, what are the top two, three, five things that you think were the government's biggest overreach on small business during this pandemic? And what do you think happens from here? I mean, the, the, the number one thing of which all things cascade from was shutting down a business and telling it that it could not operate, even if there was no science behind it, even if the store next door was open, you know, whatever it was, there was absolutely, I mean, in my opinion, unconstitutional, as I said, it, it's eminent domain. They, they took something over that was not theirs for the public good without compensation. So that, 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 that's the, the cascade effect where everything else kind of falls out. And, and you think the biggest issue there is without compensation. Like if you, if you think this is emergency powers act and things like that, that you have to, did you have to do this fine, but pay, pay the exact people 
that are right. affected in this business and they didn't do that. Appropriately, right. Yeah. It's, it, by the way, PPP, because I always get people, oh, well, there was PPP. PPP was not a fraction no. of the damage that they caused. It was not a fraction of the total amount of money that they put out there. And frankly, they structured it in such a ridiculous way the first couple of times around that early on, a lot of the businesses that needed it the most didn't even get it. So you were initially just had a bunch of businesses die because in this emergency arena, you know, Kanye West was out getting a PPP loan sure. at the same time Forbes was telling everybody he's a billionaire. So, you know, a lot of billionaires got PPP loans. I mean, a like they, some of them really filling didn't out paperwork. Right. right. To the administration. And, you know, I don't blame the banks for that. Like if you're a bank and they say, here's this thing, no, you know, yeah. fill it out. You're going to service your best customer because that's what you do. There's no reason when you are creating emergency funds to help the vulnerable small businesses that you're like, oh, you can take out a $10 million loan. Like what small business has a $10 million operating budget for like a couple months out of the year? I Forgivable mean, loan. Forgivable loan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Potent I... Potentially if you jump through enough hoops and that's unfortunately because there were 35 rule changes and guidance changes by the time, between the time the care came out and sort of that first tranche was done and really yeah you know, like june and so there were a lot of small businesses that are like i don't know that i even want to take this down because i don't trust the government and i don't want to end up in an audit or they say that it's forgivable and then they change something so yeah. that that distrust meant that even people who were eligible for ppp didn't get it and then they threw in like a whole bunch of other things, like the Kennedy Center, which you know has like a half a billion dollars worth of assets or something. The exact numbers in the book, uh, I'm somewhat remembering that, but it, it could be off by a little bit. But you know they gave them 25 million dollars to deep clean the building. Like, come on, <laughs> for, for <laughs> like, a building people can't use. <laughs> yeah, you can't go to the Kennedy Center because it's you know closed during the pandemic. But we're gonna give you 25 million bucks to deep clean it. And then, you know, one of the things that I was involved in was the calling out of the money that was going to the colleges. You know, I, you yeah, had money that, that was going to Harvard yeah. that I always call a hedge fund disguised as a, you know, a learning center, a learning you know, institution. Um, but, you know, big entities that had tens of billions of dollars in endowments, and by the way, had already gotten paid for the full year from their students. Right money they don't even pay taxes like what like what's happening here and yet you've got the small business the backbone of the economy as you yourself said that were struggling and all the jobs that were attached to that so they could have saved the jobs they could have had the businesses for people to go back to but that's not what they did they kicked up the unemployment bonus so that you, there was no incentive for you to even want to go back to work if you could you're telling me that's not a war on small business? You're telling me that's not intentional trying to centralize power and get people on the, the government dole? I'll take it one step further. In my opinion, and I lay out the case, this is all a march towards UBI, universal basic income, that all of the, the stimulus and this, this unemployment bonus, the government will take care of you. You don't have to do anything. You deserve something for breathing we'll do it. We should be involved with handing out more of the money and you don't have to worry about working. And that's what this is all about. I mean, it seems like it could go that way. Uh, I mean, you've even mentioned, you think the federal reserves created zombie companies that, you know, are distorting capitalism and creating, you know, another potential crisis. 
which I, I would think, based on our history here, will just be, once that crisis happens, another reason to control more. Because yeah, I mean, the, the zombie companies is a great point. This is actually came out of um, Arbor Data Science. They did a, a huge uh, study that I cite. By the way, the book is, has almost 500 citations. So this is not Carol just pontificating on things. This is like incited, by the way, from places like the Washington Post and the New York Times. So this is not even like, oh, I'm just taking it from the this, this small pool that agrees yeah. with the thesis. But this is, came from Arbor Data Sciences. And they said that the Fed you know, had really helped prop up zombie companies. And if you don't know what a zombie company is, it's a company that doesn't make enough profit to even pay or service the interest on their debt outstanding, let alone the principal. And they said that zombie companies um, at the time of the research report, which is you know far beyond or far before uh, even more of the trillions of dollars added to the Fed's balance sheet, but basically those accounted for more than 2.2 million jobs. So those are companies where those jobs could just go all at one time, um, as well as you know the small businesses who are potentially creditors to those zombie companies. And then um, Ruchir Sharma, who is the um, the head of emerging markets, and I think all of like the management research at Morgan Stanley, you know, he was making the point that it actually crowds out investment and innovation in new companies because this money is going to companies that should be dead, that creative destruction yeah. should flush out of the market because you know that's that's not what we want. We don't want to you know hold small businesses or any business in if they're they don't have a good business model. We just don't want them to have an unfair playing field. And it just gets further and further slanted away from them. Yeah. I, these passive funds, they they just when money comes in, they invest. And when money goes out, they, they'll invest irrespective of price. They don't care what the price is. They're going to buy because money came in. And when money goes out, they don't care what the price is. They're just going to sell. And that, that makes this problem even bigger. And I don't know if you know this, Carol. You know, you know, my day job is that I'm an activist short seller. So yes. I have people come to me all the time with a thesis that a company doesn't make any money. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> There's so many companies that don't make any money. <laughs> that is not part of the thesis. There's got to be something better there. Like the chairman stole all the money, set himself on fire, and ran down the street naked. Then I'm interested. And they but don't that make may any not money. even matter today, right? Like, I mean, the, the, that, that, you know, and I feel so much for somebody like you that adds valuable information to the market is the Fed has completely disrupted the entire idea of risk in the market. I mean, you can't, like, the, the concept of, valuing a business has gone totally out the window, which is something that you know you and I both from you know long decades in the market has a hard time putting our heads wrapped around and we know that there are a lot of negative consequences to that. Yeah, well I, I don't have a hard time putting my head around it anymore. Not after last year getting run over a couple of times by <laughs> by the stimulus and like just not really understanding in my head how much three and then four and five and seven trillion dollars is in liquidity. And the fact that that money has to go everywhere, including frauds. There's so many frauds that, that got. Back to China again, the Chinese well, companies. You know, we don't have to. We don't, <laughs> I mean, in, in China, of course you're going to be a fraud because it's not illegal in China to steal from an American citizen. So. But, but they're but they're sitting here. You've got hundreds of them hundreds, you know, yeah, on our yeah. public exchanges. Yeah, well, I, I point that out regularly, uh, sometimes on an individual basis. 
<laughs> but we, we have it in the United States too. Look, there's there's this theory that we we've talked about with many of our, our guests who, who are in the investing world of like kind of legal fraud, right? You just, you throw it in the disclosures, even though it really is kind of accounting fraud and you get away with it because I mean, what, what is the SEC, you know, uh, markets and enforcement? I think 450 employees managing 20 trillion in trading a year. That's how that Jersey deli got through the hundred billion, hundred million dollar <laughs> Jersey yeah. deli. Worth a billion dollars with the exercise. Yeah, I, was a, I support small business, but like, you know, there's a point where that gets a little r- ridiculous. I that think was, that was the only SPAC that Chamath didn't invest in. <laughs> we love Chamath. SPAC Jesus. He's I, I'm hoping one day SPAC Jesus will come on our show and explain to us. He's been how, invited. How he's, I know he's been invited. I don't <laughs> think he's it's, come. It's interesting. So, you know, as somebody who's a former investment banker who did many initial public offerings in my day. We used to laugh at SPACs, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so you want, as a business, to have the analyst coverage and the support in the market and to, to, to have that big parade coming out and disclose everything. And the idea that you would ever think of like doing a reverse merger or going into a SPAC or something, that was always the biggest red flag. Yeah. And then like last year comes along and everybody's doing it and you're going, okay, yeah, this is getting a little silly. Yeah. I, you just, you just have these guys that, you know, they come on television too. And they're like, Hey, what I have brought you and you should thank me for is this wonderful SPAC. <laughs> and I am only going to make $200 billion on this you have the potential of making, you know, 20 billion of it, right? (laughs) Or not, or it could just go down. It's, it's ridiculous. It's slowing down. But what I've, what I've learned is like, there's the RTO and then that kind of phase goes out. And then there's the jobs act IPO, which sounds great, but really what it means is you don't have to disclose shit (laughs) and you're an IPO. And then the SPAC and then like RTOs are, are going to come back because like, that's not illegal, right? You can still do a reverse takeover or, or reverse merger and it's all kind of cyclical. It's not going to go away. Uh, as SPACs start to dissipate, there's going to be another way to get things listed on the market that really should not be there. But the bigger issue is that there's just so much money chasing yield that it enables having like in a normalized market that wouldn't happen (laughs) like somebody would stand up and and scrutinize that but at this point it's like well you know i'm making 40 percent with my eyes closed anyway so let's just you know take a flyer here take a flyer here and you know i can't go to the to to vegas so like (laughs) let's throw a little bit here and so it's completely the fed is completely distorted every aspect of the market and so in that again, kind of spectrum that I keep going back to towards free market capitalism, like nobody should want this. Even if you're benefiting from this today in theory, like there's another side to it. Like you shouldn't want this. And the only people who want it are those who are going to benefit from it, um, you know, to the to the detriment of others. And and be in power. I mean, those those who would want this would right. would believe they're going to be in power in the future. So, All of central plan, everything with central planning, everything with the that centralization, and you know, it's why we have this big decentralization. It's why you have all these small businesses. It's why you have gig and independent workers. It's why you have crypto. You know that even to the extent that all Deutsch of those coin, may have come, Deutsch, Deutsch. 
Dogecoin. You know, got bastardized. The thesis behind it is the notion is that we don't trust the central planning. We're trying to have a counterbalance. And checks and balances is supposed to be what's at the root of everything American. It just has gotten so disrupted and and, and so out of whack. Um, but decentralization is the only way to fight it, which is back to why you know I pound the table for small businesses and why I think everybody should care. Uh, and 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 I'm really glad you're a guest talking about that. And uh, you know, I have to be clear for my part. I don't think this is a Democratic Party problem exclusively. I think the Republicans are notionally better with small business, but still horrible <laughs> in in like getting us into debt that we can't control, that we can't service. It has been a pox on both houses. And I don't really see that changing. So I'm going to ask you, what, what's your what's your best prediction for what our economy looks like in the next year or two, and what policy looks like in the next year or two, going into the midterms maybe, if there's going to be that pushback or or what's going to happen with debt or some of these zombie businesses? Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had my crystal ball to well, you tell don't, you the you don't, but exact like, timing. Um, but yeah, you know, the the types of proposals that are being put forward are so devastating. And, and I'm going to put some of the tax hike stuff to the side and not get mired in that because the reality is taxes get raised, they get lowered. It's like a constant lever. It's super annoying, by the way, like we shouldn't have to live our lives guessing, you know, what the tax rate's going to be based on which administration. Oh, can, can, can we just pause there for a second? I make the point that like the permanent tax cuts were on large businesses for the, for the Trump tax cuts. Correct. The ones that expired were on small businesses. Correct. And by the way, the small businesses, most of, a lot of those are passed through entities, so they didn't get the same level of tax cuts right. that the big guys got. Right. And I made a big fuss about that too. So at least you got something, but it wasn't, again, a level playing field. Again, war on small business, who who's the one that funds the politicians and who are the ones that have the lobbyists. So yeah, that becomes an issue. So well, let's put some of these like ridiculous policies around some of the tax stuff to the side because that's the kind of stuff that is going to constantly be in battle until we pull back the scope of the government. The scary stuff is the stuff that once you institute it, you can't pull it back or it's just more difficult to pull it back. So something like raising the federal minimum wage, something like the PRO Act, if we were to move in the direction of UBI, like once you promise somebody something, even if there are disastrous consequences, it never goes in the other direction. You've never had a decrease in the minimum wage because it was a disaster. You've never yeah. had you know, some entitlement be pulled back because some politician made a promise that they couldn't keep because they knew that they weren't going to be in office by the time someone had to deal with it. It is those kinds of things that if they get instituted are like potentially put us over the cliff. And then the debt situation, man, I mean, you know, more and more discussion about the dollar losing its status as a reserve currency, you know, within the next decade or two decades. Um, there's a lot of really scary stuff. And as you mentioned, people don't, the numbers are so big, billions versus trillions, like people can't even get their heads no. wrapped around how much money the government's spending, how much the Fed is enabling that bad behavior. And they have this great trick. And it doesn't matter of the party. They get us to point fingers at each other and argue about which one of us should pay more instead of all of us coming together and going, no, 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 no. 
you have far too much money. All of us want to pay less. You do more with less. Right. How about if, you? If we could do that. How about you spend less? Have, yeah. How about spending less? Maybe maybe we could do that. We have a spending problem. We don't have a quote unquote revenue, which is not revenue, it's just taking our money. We don't have a, a tax collection problem. We have a spending problem. And then when you get into the people, oh, well, what would you get rid of? You like forget, let's just let's start at the top. Don't even get rid of anything. Just cut the budgets in each one of those silos to start and see where the inefficiencies are. Well, the sequester actually worked. Remember when that was going to be a catastrophe that Obama had to do the sequester and everything just got cut across the board. And that's what happened. And it was a big non-event. We yeah. ended up cutting some expenses right. through a through a just like a blanket sequester of 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 spending. Yeah, there there was a there was a a survey that came out from Self Financial that showed how much in taxes the average American paid over their lifetime. Mm. And no matter who you are, what you are, on average, it was over thirty four percent. And in some states like New Jersey, it was up to over 49%. Oh, try California. The, 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 think about that. The fact that like all of this money, all this prosperity that could be going out and you know, used for innovation and used in the way that you see fit is going to the government. Like, why is it any, like, like, why is anyone saying, no, no, they should really get more. They've got too much of your money. 34% on average is insane to be giving up to the government in a free country. Yeah. It's it's a lot of money. And, it's a lot. And it's it, a lot. it looks like it looks like it's going to be more money which you know w- when Obama raised taxes I remember back in like 2009 it was I I, I was it, it affected me in every way possible, right? Like cuz I I traded and there were extra taxes for that and and I just said to myself, "You know what? Fine. I I you know, I have more than most." So I'll pay a little bit more because everybody's going to get free health care and it's going to be great. <laughs> and we're going to solve this health care problem. Oh, and, Dan. <laughs> I know. Oh, Dan. Yeah. Right. I, I really am I just. I could have had a chat with you back. Can we go in the hot tub time machine and like go back yeah. in time? Sure. I guess. I, 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 just, I just wanted to be like, I want to be supportive of every president we have, of, of every government we have. But I find myself getting more and more disappointed, whether we're starting a war that we don't need to be in, that we, we say is going to cost. I mean, really, the first number that was, that was put out there by the Bush administration was this would be $50 billion. Seriously. Really. And, and then it just it gets worse and worse. And you're right. I mean, I think the more government does, the more they get in our way. And I, I mean, with, with the debt we have and, and with m- taking more away, it's not going to, you talk about taking from the top earners, fine, fine. But like, think about it. If you take the top 10 wealthiest people in the world, chop their heads off and throw them in a ditch, you're not even going to pay one year worth of our budget. Yeah. You, you get you get three or four um, months worth of government, which is, I think, one of the things that people don't really understand. And by the way, if you had the, the top 10 in America that went and moved somewhere else, let's say they all moved to Switzerland, it wouldn't impact anybody's life. So like you're not making any more or less money or getting anything more or less because these 10 people have so much. That's, I think, the, the disconnect that people who don't have a business and financial education 
don't understand. They also don't understand that they're so wealthy because of the value of their business and the role that the Fed and the government's played in that, and that they're not like Scrooge McDuck's, you know, swimming around in a room of gold coins, <laughs> which is uh, is a separate <laughs> issue yeah. as well. But you know, one of the things that didn't make it in my book that you were kind of alluding to is, I mean, there's a way to support people without having the government be in the middle of it. Um, some other countries use things called provident funds. So like imagine instead of us paying, you know, whatever we pay into social security from our paychecks, imagine that went into our own fund. And imagine that the employer matching could go, you know, somewhere else to somebody else's fund who maybe isn't working because, you know, they're just disabled or whatever. But like, imagine you owned that and imagine you could actually invest in it and a return on it instead of giving it to the government to go spend on some other nonsense and get an IOU. I mean, think about the amount of wealth that would create for people. What governments do? I mean, Liz, you're blowing my mind. So I got to ask you, what governments do this? So um, there are different there are different formats of it. So Singapore has a Provident Fund mm-hmm. um, and So there are two different ways to structure it. One is where you pay into it and the government manages it. I'm not in favor of that part. I'm in the one where you pay into it and the government doesn't manage it. You bring it into, you know, (laughs) you have have ownership. And one of the things they do, um, I believe it's in Singapore, is that they also have you pay in for like other things. So like health or education or whatever. So you like, so it's a mandate that you kind of save for yourself. So you're kind of helping people help themselves. And I would take it a step further that if you opt out of it and you're like, screw it, I'm going to do what I want because I'm sophisticated, then that's fine. But if people feel like they need that help, there's a way to do that, but then to cut the government out. And I think we need to have smarter people looking at all of these entitlements and things that are wealth transfers and saying, well, why does the government need to be in the middle of that? If we're, I mean, we're the ones that are paying for it anyway. So why can't when I pay in, why can't I own that? And why can't I invest it? I guarantee you I'll have more money and I'll be able to feel that wealth effect than giving it to the government to spend on, you know, studying shrimp, walking on treadmills underwater. Well, that, first of all, I'm for that. That would be really cool. They, they do. Like sh- shrimp, sh- that, that's cool. You're going to send me that. Get it. That was, by the way, that was a real study that we funded through the yeah, NIH. I, yeah. Like, like, you know, the study of arrows when that first healthcare act was just, you know, it's ridiculous, but I, I could tell you one of the reasons we can't do that is because, you know, all of the, uh, all of the <laughs> unfunded liabilities that we have now, we borrowed against, we borrowed against social security. I mean, when you talk about 30 trillion in debt, people, you go to a, uh, you know, a party or whatever, they'll say, well, we just won't pay China back. They have less than a trillion of that debt. Right. Yeah. They're like, you know, 700 billion. The rest of it, we owe ourselves. We owe ourselves, right. So we're paying for it one way or another. So that's my, like, here's the thing. If you took took me, and especially took me 10 years ago, and you said, listen, Carol, you give up Social Security, but for the rest of your working life, you can pay in and you own it. I'm out. That's all you need to tell me. I'm out. Great, fine. You don't owe me freaking anything. Have fun with it. Do what you need to do. But I get to keep the rest of it because at the end of the day, we're going to pay for it either way. And either we're going to have the stupid government in the middle adding like taxes and idiocy on top of it, or I'm going to be able to actually invest that money. Yeah. So there's a way to do it. There, There is a way to do it. But again, it takes courage. Uh, okay, well, and, and also somebody who's smart, yeah. and that's the other problem is we elect people based on the fact that they're popular, like we did in high school, not 
based on any domain expertise, yet we have them in charge of, you know, trillions of dollars per year and, you know, cryptocurrency and financial regulation and healthcare and everything else. Really good idea, guys. Really good. Idea. Yeah. I mean, I can see why people get into cryptocurrency though, because like, you know, once you stop trusting the dollar, I mean, we're, exactly. it, it is about not trusting the dollar, right? As, I mean, that's, all the, that's all the backs of the dollar is fake. Yeah. That's it. At this point in time, it's the faith in U.S. production and then the government's shepherding of the U.S. production, right? I mean, that, that's that's it. Well, that's I, what it is. I try to put it in perspective for people like so they can visualize it that $3.5 trillion stacked on top of each other can take you to the moon. That's, that's, that's a literal truth. I mean, it's no wonder that lumber is now three times what it was. We're using all the paper, I guess, to, to print the money. But we don't actually print the money, right? So we could go to the moon and back like six, seven times just with dollars stacked on top of each other with, with the amount of debt that we have. I don't know that there's getting out of that. And now we've got the inflation where, you know, you've got a piece of plywood, it's 25 bucks last year, now it's 90. And we say that's going to come back down to 25. I don't believe that ever. I don't know that it'll always be at 90, but it's not coming back down to 25. The you know, price of chicken doubled. I mean, if I'm noticing the prices of something, this is where my wife gets concerned. I've never noticed the price of anything in like 50 years. And I was like, what? When did four pieces of chicken at the supermarket cost like 18 bucks? And we're not at Whole Foods. <laughs> so I... It, so, and by the way, so just to say there's there's two aspects to that inflation, right? There's the the, the monetary policy piece. And then there's the government keeping people out of the workforce piece and paying them to stay home so that you have to pay a higher price to get people back and mess with supply and demand. I've never seen so many help wanted signs in my life. So you've got the, like the, the Fed and the government, there's this little evil cabal of central planning working together and you are not the beneficiary, <laughs> by the way. When did they lose their independence exactly in your mind, the, the Federal Reserve? I mean, like, they used to be quasi-independent, right? I mean, did was did... so. I talked through the story um, in the book, "The War on Small Business," um, and I borrow a lot from with with citation from the case against the Fed from Dr. Murray Rothbard. If any of you know him, fantastic. Oh yeah, we're buddies. Um, but what happened is, you know, they tried all of these national banking structures. And the people who were in charge, like the Morgans and all these influential bankers, didn't feel like they had enough control and didn't feel like they had a mechanism for bailing themselves out if they got into trouble. And so they wanted to have something that was a central bank that was cloaked in the sort of uh, you know guise of independence. And that's how they came up with this ridiculous structure that they have now, where you have this organization that, you know, reports to Congress, but isn't really accountable to them. It doesn't share their minutes with them, but gives their profits back to the US Treasury. So it's like, it's supposed to be independent, but it's not. It's really this government agency where the government and politicians can go, oh, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like, you know, we, we have nothing to do with it. That's the Fed and the Fed can you know, kind of say the same thing. So I feel like it was structured that way for disaster to begin with. But where it really went awry is you know, during um, 1987 when we had that huge Black crash on Black Monday and the Fed started taking unusual activity um, that really opened the door to the Fed doing things that they weren't doing before. And then certainly during the Great Recession financial crisis, 
then you know they kind of like rush through that door with with reckless abandon and we've never turned back i mean we had seven years of zero interest rate policy it wasn't like this emergency thing that they needed to fix it never went back in the other direction we never meaningfully brought down the balance sheet and in this last situation which wasn't a recession it was just a turning off of the economy they put even more on there knowing that that wasn't going to get anybody back to work yeah, i mean spent, that's the most hilarious part we spent so much more in in stimulus or just like money for for this shutting down the economy than we did for the financial crisis remember the financial crisis 2008 the the biggest argument was over like 780 billion dollars passing that which didn't pass like the first or the second time and right. that was so much money controversial highly yeah. controversial right and, and and like look i get that when obama came in he had to do what he had to do and bernanke had to do what he i mean it, and I, I i don't go with the notion that he saved the economy he did what anybody would do you would have to and I, trump as a candidate just pillared obama about not getting off quantitative easing and low interest rates and <laughs> And it, all the things I really kind of wanted to hear from a candidate other than him, but he was the one saying it, so I had to appreciate it. And then he gets into office and he's like, oh, fuck that. I'm, I'm kicking the can down the road. Well, not only that, he was an active um, botherer, for lack of a better word, of the Fed. You know, the Fed's supposed to be, quote, quote unquote, independent, right. even though we all know it's not. Right. But the president never comes out and says, your interest rate policies, crap, you're not doing enough. Well, I think, I think Trump said exactly that. I think I all think, the time. I, I tweet, tweet, tweet upon tweet of him saying that, which, by the way, is harder to find now that they blew up his Twitter account and didn't archive anything, but you can find it in other articles. Oh, that, so listen, that is another subject that I'm just irate about and, and, and talk about overreach. But yeah, I mean, I, I really believe that like Trump wanted to have private phone calls with, with Powell or Yellen and be like, hey, just so you know, if you raise interest rates, I'm going to have you killed. Yeah. I'm in charge yeah, I mean, of the drones. But when interest rates were rising yeah. and, and there was some appropriate movement in that direction, Trump freaked out and the market freaked out. Right. And unfortunately, the Fed didn't have a spine. They seemed to think their mandate was to prop up the stock market, which I don't know. I miss that in the mandate. It is definitely the mandate now. And Biden's not even going to try it. He's not no. even going to attempt it. No chance. And until they're so far behind the eight ball that it ends up being ugly. And that that's the worst part about it. it goes back to the whole notion of central planners being arrogant and thinking that they control everything. But the reality is like once this this horse is out of the barn, they're not gonna be able to catch it. What do you what do you think now that we've kind of touched on it about Twitter and and Facebook and other big tech just kind of arbitrating on their own of who can speak and who can't? So I'm an advocate of free speech, both from a constitutional perspective, as well as from a concept. And I think that sometimes those get conflated, right? Mm -hmm. that, that we have the ability to you know, say what we want to against the government and that's protected. We don't have the ability in a private forum to say whatever we want and not have any consequences. But I think that it is good business practice for these social media entities to follow that like if you threaten somebody's life or if you you know incite violence or you know right. certain things that would be considered constitutionally unacceptable then you should be shut down um and i think unfortunately they don't apply those standards at all 
um, fairly or consistently, which is an issue. And I also think there's an issue that there's no path to redemption. I mean, even in our legal system, if you do something illegal, you have a way, you make amends, you sit out on the sidelines, and then you have a way back in. And so for them to just like, you know, I understand it's not fun to sit and police this stuff and that's not what, how they want to be spending their time, but if they're going to get protection from it, it would be good to have something that was consistent, that was on the side of free speech and letting people handle it themselves, and then having a path to redemption with a couple of exceptions. Now, somebody's going to argue, oh, you know, Trump incited an insurrection. I'm sorry, a guy with like little like Viking horns like, if you think that's an insurrection, when an insurrection actually happens, you're going to be sorely caught off guard. I mean, like, it was horrible. It was yeah. stupid. <laughs> but, like, that's not an insurrection, people. No. So, come uh, on. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, listen. I mean, like, you know, I, if somebody wants to say incited violence, I'm maybe not going to argue with them. I, 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 too, have a different concept of insurrection. It, it went way too far. It went way too far. Right. And he should have said. Yeah. I don't, you know, to me, I can't believe that the election went this way. We're going to investigate it. But until we find some actual evidence, this is a dead issue and we'll be back to you. And the fact that he wasn't willing to do that is his own albatross to bear. And unfortunately, one, one, one of many. And and what he did was was, I, I think, clearly impeachable, just not when you've left office. I mean, like, I mean, give me I mean, like, really, you're going to impeach somebody who's actually in office. I mean, that became a bit of a distraction during a pandemic when we. When we all needed, we all needed to concentrate on some other things. Yes. So, yeah. Look, th this is all uh, very, very, very cool to have somebody out there with your kind of megaphone talking truth to power and and common sense. What can people do as individuals or as listeners that empowers themselves, empowers their community? to not let this kind of thing continue, even in a different form, if it's not if it's not about a pandemic, but just government overreach. Yeah, so I think there's two pieces to it. One is the um, exercising of capitalism and your own wallet. There are so many people who have gotten very used to the conveniences of some of these big tech companies, and I'm not telling you not to use them if you find them convenient, but if you have a small business that is providing you good service, and you never patronize them, you know, other than maybe once a year, they're going to go away. So vote with your wallets. You know, even if you, even if you were to go out and get my book, you could do it at a place called bookshop.org online. It's still super convenient, Ooh, but they'll drop fulfill, the plug. <laughs> yeah, just, they'll fulfill from a local, a local bookstore. So there, there are ways that you can go out and support small business and support decentralization. Um, I think there needs to be a fundamental shift in this country. I think we have a two-party duopoly and duopolies, you know, if anybody believes that antitrust is bad with big companies, it's bad with pol politics as well. They have too much power and they don't have enough incentive to actually change the system. We need to get back to principles. People are focusing on political parties. They're focusing on people. And at the end of the day, if you get towards those and you get away from principles, then it's just going to devolve and it doesn't matter if it's a red or a blue or a blue or red. Like you said several times in the podcast, you know, both parties have ownership um, of this issue. And so the crazy thing is I really feel like most of the people in the country and even when you kind of survey where people are, most people are in the center. 
yeah. most people I believe am. in this thing, yeah, but because we're decentralized and independent, it's yeah. it's hard to cut us all together. No, I I, to um, I totally agree, and I think I, I think you said I it very well. That, yeah, I do think that um, when there are issues, things like pro act, things like minimum wage, if you can get a bunch of your independent friends to come together and to make a phone call. You know, they've said, like, I looked at things from Vox and the New York Times, like, sometimes it takes like 15 phone calls. I know. And that's it. And they start to panic because nobody it. does that anymore. Yeah. So, call, call so I know we, like, we all want to be left alone, but you have to actually preserve freedom and economic freedom. There's, yeah. Like, there's a responsibility there. Tell them they're not woke. Tell them they're a racist. Tell them, you know, whatever, that they're anti China and, and, and they'll capitulate. And I think that you said it very well when you're like, you know, if we just get back to principles. And, and policing yourself first, right? You know, not having a double standard for everybody else in your life and, and you can act the way you want to act. And as far as our, our duopoly, you know, I totally agree. I, I remember people saying, like, close, close friends. We just need to burn down the Republican Party. And I'm like, okay, well, the only thing more dangerous to a two-party republic is a one-party republic. <laughs> so, you know, please come up with another plan. Like, and and we make it very very hard. I get it to have a third party, because independent. Well, so that's part of the, By the way, that's part of the duopoly, and this didn't make it in the final version of the book, but I did a whole research study on that, and that's intentional. The two parties yep. basically funded the yep. system that decides who has debates and all these things. They don't want the competition no. from a third party. No, and that's so, right. But we all know, all of us free market people know what what happens with competition. Right. More choice, better outcomes. Like we need more competition. So you would be for a, a more defined third and fourth party, right? Like Absolutely. Other than Absolutely. independent, which I have no idea what it means, libertarian, I guess you could drink Drano if you want to. The Green Party, you love nature. I, I, I They're not some defined. Sort of some sort of centrist like new like right. you know kind of tea party 2.0 like whatever that looks like um and here's the thing too is that people always talk about government well oh that would result in government gridlock i actually think we no, could that, use that's, that's some government gridlock like we don't want them doing any when they do things it always ends up badly so if we can get some gridlock and they don't do anything at least like we we have some time to try and maybe like bring it back the, the, so i don't necessarily think gridlock. that's an argument against it <laughs> we, we the, what we've been in for the last 20 30 years is government gridlock i mean so you know having a third or fourth party where you now have to compromise because you're never going to have that full majority you you need that second or third party to be on your side i think would be better for us but yeah, I think you've said it all very well, and you know I appreciate you being here. I see, you know, your your small business too. You even had a you have a doll made after you. She has an action figure. I like, have my own action figure, and I also work in addition to the twelve million other things I do. Um, for about sixteen years, I've been the outsourced chief customer officer for a collectibles company. So, yeah. is that I, where I you got the action space. figure? Yeah. Do you actually have one with any, you know, Chicago Bears or uh, Blackhawks paraphernalia? I don't want to see that. I don't want to see it. No, no. Excellent. That's just a black dress. That's not. That's, I, I've seen the action figure, but that's not a. That's not. At least that's not a Bears outfit. Yeah. No, we don't. They, um, the company is in the high fashion realm, so they do stuff that's kind of based more on runway trends, <laughs> not on sort of ready to wear sports but there yeah. are there's a great ecosystem of other collectors out there so i'm sure we could find 
a uh, Bears size no, action it. figure jersey. We're, yeah, we're gonna get Carl an action figure because Carl is the hero and the victim in his own movie that he keeps replaying in his head. That's right. So <laughs> he deserves what's one. The, what's the name of the movie? Uh, wh- what is wh- is it with Pork Chop Carl? Pork Chop Carl. Yes. Yeah, there you go. I like it. All right, very marketable. Carol, uh, any any parting words? Anything that you want to tell us? Leave us with. And don't forget to tell us like how to follow you on Twitter or or what mediums that we can follow you on because you're fascinating. So well, thank you, thanks. Yeah, so the I um, Twitter is my medium of choice until they kick me off. It's at Carol J S Roth. Sometimes I turn on notifications because they do throttle my account from time to time when I go uh, when I get a little out of control. Um, but definitely the kinds of things you've heard here peppered in with some animal videos, some snarks, some sports. It's, it's a little bit of a smorgasbord there. Um, if you like the things that I've been talking about, it's interesting. Definitely, if you could check out the book, The War on Small Business, as I mentioned, bookshop.org will fulfill from a local small business. Or if you want to exercise your capitalistic cool. right to buy it anywhere, please do. But I think it's a good, I was hoping that the, in addition to kind of sticking up for small business, the discussion of small business for people who believe in smaller government is a good entree to open and bre- breach these discussions, broach these discussions with people who may not otherwise be amenable. There aren't that many people out there who are like, oh, screw small business owners. There are a few, I've come across them. But most people are, are sort of open to, hey, you know, I come to this country as an immigrant or, you know, I have an idea or I'm a mom or, you know, whatever, and, and I'm going out and I'm starting something and either I'm caring for myself or I build the next big business. And so I think it's an it's an easy example to kind of show what has happened and, and get people understanding the concept of it. And just, you know, be active. Like, unfortunately, we, we have this like amazing, unique country that, you know, in theory, supports the individual, the smallest minority, and that has really become bastardized. And it is not because we have a piece of paper that says so, it's because we've all agreed that that piece of paper meant something. But I think we we need to be more active about it. You, you need to, fr- freedom isn't free. <laughs> and even if you are not serving in the military, like you still have to stand up and defend these rights. And please, capitalists, like, please stand up. There's so many capitalists out there who are saying, oh, we're in late stage capitalism or this has gone wrong. No, free markets are great. What's gone wrong is cronyism. Blame that back on the government, but stand up. If you have benefited, it's probably not just because you're the smartest guy out there. It's because there is this opportunity, this unsystem that allows for people from anywhere to change their spot in life. I mean, my dad was an electrician. My parents, neither of my parents graduated from college. And, you know, here I am in a totally different situation because of that opportunity. We need to preserve that opportunity for others. You don't want to pull the ladder up behind you. So, so teach people about capitalism, teach them. You, you all know this, you all know that equity is the path to building wealth. So teach more people about that, not going on the government dole. Like you wouldn't stand for that in your own life. So stop talking about that. Wow. That's a lot of passion. I like it. That's a, that's a, that's a great place to end it. Everybody should like replay the last two minutes here and, and listen to what Carol said, because it, the American dream used to be something we were proud of, not something we were ashamed of. It doesn't have to be at everybody's expense. It can be at everybody's benefit. That's when we're at our best. And Carol, you've just been a great guest. I I really appreciate what you're doing. 
And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you down the road and reading your stuff. Awesome, Dan. Thanks so much. And thanks to Carl, who I think tracked this down, put this together, put all the notes together. Pre- appreciate you as well. Oh, don't the team do that. effort. The don't team teamwork that. makes the dream work. Don't do that. That's don't right. do That's that, right. Carol. That's don't right. do that. <laughs> and to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment. Give us a retweet. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. 